0: Glad you're all with us this morning. Psalm 37, the Psalm of David. Fret not, you, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. In my email with bulletin, I gave you a working title, coming to faith. Actually, it should have been coming to trust, because while the words are synonymous, there are just maybe slight differences. In them, Jean Francis Grovellet, as I told you in the bulletin, his stage name was Charles Broden, Blondin. Excuse me. He was a French tightrope walker and an acrobat. He first came to Niagara in 1858, and upon seeing the falls there, he, being a performer, saw this undoubtedly as a challenge and he became obsessed with crossing the Niagara River on a tightrope. I think he was crazy, but that's me. But on June 30th, 1859, London successfully walked across the river on a tightrope and reached Canada. He was 150 feet in the air above the Niagara Gorge, downriver from the falls. He walked on a cable of two to three inches in diameter, And it was an 1100 foot walk. All he had with him was a 30 foot pole to balance. The pole weighed 50 pounds. He crossed the falls successfully to the Canadian side. He took a break, 20 minutes long. And he took what's called a Derogat-type camera, which would be about six and a half by five and a half by eleven and three eighths inches in size. One of those big box-type cameras you see in movies from the Wild West or you see in museums. He carried it on his back, and about 200 feet from the American side, he stops and takes it off his back, takes a picture of those on the other side, on the American side. After the picture, in these types of cameras, you had to wait just a few seconds. They weren't just like my iPhone. You'd snap it and it was done. It took a little bit of time for the light and all to make the image. I don't know how long he stood on that tightrope, but a few seconds at least. Like I said, I think he was crazy. He walked then and put the camera back on his back, continued on his way, successfully traversing the tightrope back to the American side. Blondin would complete eight more crossings, Being a performer, he liked to do theatrical variations of it. He did one crossing blindfolded. He was crazy, I'm telling you. Uh, He did it in a sack. Uh, He did it midway to the middle of the tightrope, cooked an omelet. He went across as an H-suit pushing a wheelbarrow. He was a performer. He would have been somebody to see do this. Now, the question is, after, you know, going to that the first time, if you have asked somebody, said, do you want me to carry come across, I'll carry you on my back? I mean, he would have had confidence in his ability. Would you have said yes? I wouldn't have said yes. Seeing him do it the first time successfully and he does it again, I wouldn't have said yes. But as I've said in the email, his most difficult crossing in 1859, he carried his manager, Harry Colford, on his back. He made it successfully. He would do other traverses across the falls. I don't know what it took to convince Harry Alford Colford to do that. I know he wouldn't have done it the first time. But after eight successful attempts and seeing how he's done, maybe practicing with him five feet above the ground, or maybe on the ground on a beam, he had some confidence in him. So he put his trust in him, and let me tell you, there was a lot of trust to do something like that. You're 160 feet in the air, you've got an 1100 1100 foot walk across a raging river. I don't know if they would have died had they fallen in. Uh, They were past the falls, but the current and the churning of the water may have made rescue difficult. But what can we learn from this? We can learn trust. We can learn about developing and growing in faith. We're going to talk a little bit today about Abraham. Because Abraham is out there in the Bible. We run into him in Genesis chapter 11, when we read of his genealogy from his father, Herod. In Genesis 11, verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred in in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram He took and Abram, and Nor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Isha, Ishka. Now Sarai was barren and had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot his son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, Abraham's wife. And they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came there, but when they came to Haran... They settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That's really all we know about Abraham's background. What we next know is that the Lord appeared and said to God, or said to Abram, Go from your country. I want us to think about just before he gets to chapter 12. In the early years, what was it like growing up as Abraham? Well, Joshua tells us, in Joshua chapter 24 and verses 2 and 3, and he was getting ready to die, giving his charge to the people of Israel to obey God, to follow him, he says, and it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. Abram grew up in an idolater's family. Abram's father's name is Terah. The root word is akin to moon. And apparently the moon god was the chief deity of earth. And so it would not be unusual to have somebody name their child after the moon god. Signifying that their family and this individual is under the protection of that god. Interestingly enough, Abraham's wife Sarai was named after the wife of the moon god. Now, I don't know what all that has to do with it, other than showing the background of idolatry and the worship of deities in the heavens and, you know, ascribing to them some kind of power. On a Jewish website, it says the Midrashic Abraham, uh, Rabbi Chaya said, Terah was an idol worshiper. Once he went on a trip and he placed Abraham in charge of the store. A man came in to buy an idol, and Abraham would ask him, How old are you? The man would respond, Fifty. And Abraham would reply, Whoa, you're fifty years old, and yet you bow down to this one who is only a day old? The man would then feel embarrassed and walk away. Again, this is legend. We don't know this happened for a fact. It could have. It's interesting. It's a fun story. On another occasion... A woman comes bringing a dish of fine flour, and she said to Abraham, Here, offer this before them. Abraham picked up a staff, broke the idols, and placed the staff in the hand of the largest of them. When his father returned, he says, Why did you do this to them? He said, Would I hide it from you? A woman came carrying a plate of fine fine flour and told me to offer it before them. Each one of them said, I will eat first until the largest of them picked up this staff and shattered the others. To which his father allegedly replied, Why are you trying to fool me? I know what they are. And Abraham is alleged to have replied, Do your ears not hear what your mouth is saying? I don't know if that happened. It may have. I just know that Abraham grew up in a family where they worshipped deities and idols, and that's what he was caught up with and maybe practiced. Why does this happen? Terah was the eighth generation from Noah's son Shem. Noah knew God, but something happened in those subsequent generations. They devolved. They got further and further away from God until, like Paul said in in Romans chapter 1, they walked away from God. And so God left them. My paraphrase, if you will. But consider this quote when, from Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, what are you going to start following? basically everything that's in the land. Because those are the things that are being reinforced to you. Now with Israel, it would have been these false gods, these pagan deities, the sun, the moon, the stars, the things that God had told them back in Exodus 20, don't do. People became idol worshippers. Now in Isaiah chapter 44, an interesting passage that we find about idol worshippers It says in verse, uh, let me get my reference here, verse 14. He cuts down cedars, chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself, kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over half he eats meat. He roasted and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, "Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire." And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it and prays to it, and says, "Deliver me, for you are my God." They do not. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see. They just didn't have any understanding any longer. In their human wisdom, this was some representation, I know, of a God. And Abraham probably was bowing down before these idols. I really discount the midrashic tradition. Because I don't think that Abraham was quite that aloof, you know, philosophically astute yet. That's just my opinion. I think he was caught up in it just like his father was. But there was something that he did. He would offer this flower. He would offer... A sacrifice and nothing happened. But why would God call Abraham? Have thine own way, Lord, was the song we sung. You're the potter, I'm the clay. God will mold you and make you and shape you into what he wants you to become, and that's what he was going to do with Abraham. Now, why would God call a man who worships idols? Well, I think way back in Israel's history, in 1 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're told. Because this is how God looks at it. This is God choosing David, sending Samuel to anoint him. Samuel goes up there, Saul's lost the throne, his family's lost the throne. It's going to be David now. God's going to choose someone else. And so they're there at Jesse's house, and it says, When they came, he looked on, this is the sons of Jesse, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you know the rest of the story. You follow on down there, he goes through all of the sons of Jesse, and none of them pass muster. And so he says, Do you have another son? Yeah, well, David, he's out in the field tending the sheep. Go get him. When David gets there, God says, this is the one. And so Samuel anoints him. God does not look at things the way you and I look at things. And so his call then maybe makes a little bit of sense because he saw something in Abraham early on. And he says, it says, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Now, that sounds really easy if you would think that Abraham would know and have trust and confidence in this. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 2 and 3, we learn a little bit more about his call. In Acts chapter seven and verse twenty-three, this is Stephen's or two and three. Or this is Stephen's defense. The high priest was wanting to hear from him, and he said, and Luke writes for us, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram, Abraham when he lived in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go to the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And the rest of the story develops. So apparently, maybe God appeared to Abraham visibly. He appeared to him in some fashion. Could it have been a burning bush that wasn't consumed like before Moses? I don't know. But there was something there, and then Abram heard. And the unique thing is, none of these other idols had ever said a word to Abram. They were silent as the stone that they were created from. You know, we're told by Paul that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Abraham heard God. The idols aren't speaking to him and aren't taking the sacrifices that he's offering them. He's burning them and he doesn't know what's going on. But now something's appeared to him and speaks to him. I'm thinking, whoa, this is different. And he's listening really carefully. Now, his listening, well, you know, his trust and faith is something you grow into. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a famine in the land. They go down to Egypt. Abram is afraid because his wife Sarai is beautiful. And so he says, tell them you're my sister or they're going to kill me and take you. Well, if she's his sister, she's fair game. So they took her anyway. And Pharaoh was wanting to add her to his harem. But it says in verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said to what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Apparently, God told Pharaoh that this is another man's wife, and Pharaoh and, he, and he, Abraham said, and so he takes his wife Sarai and they leave Egypt. Now there's a few more stories. He makes a covenant in Genesis 15. Because Abram is saying, thinking back that God promised me a son and I don't have a son. It's going to be Eleazar. And God says, look at all the stars. You're going to have more children than that. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so he makes a sacrifice. He stays awake to keep the animals and the birds away from him. he falls asleep with the sacrifices consumed by God. As God walks through at the fire, taking the sacrificial animals. You know the story. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You know, he promised a a child. So, chapter 16, Hagar and Sarah. Sarah, um, you know, tries to fix things. Abraham's well with this. He's okay. Maybe, you know, God made a promise. Maybe this is how he's going to do it. So, he does it. Ishmael is conceived and born God says that's not the son in Genesis chapter 18 no you and Sarah are going to have a son in Genesis chapter 18 he tells him it's going to be you and Sarah he says no I wish it would be Ishmael he says no you and Sarah I'm 100 years old my wife's 90 how can this be But it's interesting, in Genesis 18, it says in verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent. Again, God's revealing himself to Abraham. He would change his name in in chapter 17. And Isaac is conceived and born. And then we have another one. We have a challenge. But Abraham doesn't forget his ways, he's now in the country of Abimelech, and Abimelech sees Sarai. And Abraham says, she's my sister. Oh, and God told Abimelech, no, you made a mistake. Abraham still wasn't fully trusting God yet. You see, he wasn't ready to get on the tightrope and walk with God, fully committed to, to walk with him. But he was getting closer. Isaac is born, chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, we're very familiar with this passage. It says in chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. What does that mean? He's your son. He's Isaac, the son of the promise. And you love him dearly. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah. Abraham's saying, okay, yeah, we'll go there. And offer him as a sacrifice. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains where I shall tell you. Abraham didn't argue with God. I imagine he was confused and wondered what was going on, and he goes and he sees the place on the third day from afar. He tells the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. I don't know if Abraham thought about what he was saying, but he's, We're going to be back. He hasn't told Isaac what's going on. They're carrying the journey. Isaac's got the wood, Abraham's got the fire. Isaac's looking around, where is the lamb? God will provide. At some point in time, when the altar is built, the wood's laid out on it, Abraham tells Isaac what's going to happen. I don't know what Abraham what Isaac said. I would like to know. But I don't. But he went along with it. By this time, Abraham or Isaac was probably late teens, early twenties. He wasn't A 10-year-old boy, a 12-year-old boy, he was old enough to resist, but he trusted his father who trusted God. And when he was there, it tells us in verse 10, when Abraham reached out his hand, he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He lifted up his eyes, there's a ram, they have to sacrifice, they go home, everything's fine. You see, faith, trust in God takes time. It doesn't come instantaneously. There may be that initial, I'm going to give my life to God, but to develop the trust To leave idols and leave your country and sacrifice your son takes a lot. And there's a lot we don't know of Abraham's journey of faith. But God calls you too. Aren't you glad that God, though He knows your past, still wants you? You know, in John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that's the most quoted scripture probably that there is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have, ever, have eternal life. God makes a choice. He made a choice to give his son. In the book of Acts, in chapter 9, we read of Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church, according to his own words in Galatians chapter 1, beyond measure. And he met Jesus. There appeared, in verse 3, on his way to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Saul had an interesting experience here. It could have only been God that brought him to faith. He goes into Damascus. He's told there to wait. He's waiting there, fasting, eating three days without a drink or eating. And in verse 10, a disciple named Ananias had a vision. He's told by God, go to, and I'll make the story short, go see Saul. Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Here he has the authority from the chief priest to find all who call on your name. Lord, are you sure you want me to do this? And God says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went. Saul was brought to Christ. He was baptized into Christ. Acts 22 and verse 16. God calls you, maybe not in the same dramatic way that he called Abraham or Saul, but he loves you and he calls you through the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The life of Abraham is one example that scripture gives to us about faith. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 11, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction, another word for trust. For by it people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Out of all those Old Testament patriarchs, he died in early adulthood. He was 365 years old, I think, when others were living, 900 years, Methuselah, lived 969 years. Now he was taken because he can please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards him, rewards those who seek him. Noah saved by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place to use to receive it as an inheritance, and he dwelled there as an alien in a foreign land. But in chapter eleven and verse seventeen, by faith Abraham, when he, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So you see, it took Abraham a little bit of time. And when you get troubled along the way in your journey of faith, when bad things happen, it just hurts. It kind of knocks you off your, off your tightrope. And you're falling. But you're falling into the hands of God. Abraham is an example to us who walk by faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You may not know what the future holds, but knowing God, you know who holds the future. That's what we're here for today. Because in God, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, as we talked about it just briefly in our class today, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave himself up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing. And so when we're going through those bad things in life, the things that we... Lord, what's going on? And you're ready to lose your faith. Hold on. Hold on to that balancing pole of faith. Because as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 we know that those who love for those who love god all things work together for good may not be good things that happen but god won't work them to your good it wasn't a good thing to experience a famine but god worked it out when they were in egypt abraham was afraid of pharaoh I'm telling you my sister okay God worked it out, protected Sarah's integrity, protected the lineage, protected Abraham. He did that over and over until finally Harry Alford got on that tightrope with Charles Blondin. But in the case of Abraham, God said, "Go sacrifice your son," and he did. And he told the young man, "We'll be back," and they were. I don't know how God's going to work that out in your life. I don't know how he's going to work it out in my life. But I do know that his life is an example of trust. And that trust is something that it takes several times of being there to see how things go. Harry Colcord didn't get on that first time across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. Why? He didn't trust, probably, truth be known, that he was going to make it. It was too much of a risk. But later on, he said, okay, I'm confident in him. Just like Abraham finally grew in his trust to offer up Isaac. And God blessed him. And God will bless you as you trust in him. You may not see who holds it, what's going on, but when you know God holds the future, you know you're going to be okay. And so the invitation is to come to Jesus, because it is a wonderful story of love, that God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die for us. Knowing that we're sinful, idolatrous people, He still loved us and He calls us to trust in Him. I don't know what you're going through today, but God does. If you're going through something and you just want prayers that your brothers and sisters come forward and we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. If you stray, come back to trust. Come back to trust God and let him hold you and rescue you because that's what he wants to do. So if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to Jesus? Well, together we stand and while we sing this song for your encouragement.